0: Marsham Soccer here. Welcome back to The Realignment.
1: Yeah, and and the Taiwanese uh, defense minister actually said that there is a pretty high chance that the Chinese could engage in a full-scale invasion of the island by 2025, which is obviously, you know, in geopolitical terms, tomorrow. And I think that we have to ask ourselves, if you really want to serve the interests of peace, and if you want to prevent these things from happening, how do you do that? And do you do that by uh, sticking your head in the sand and and you know pretending like you're not in a, a moment of major geopolitical tension, or do you do that by leaning in on deterrence and actually preventing a very ambitious autocratic foreign government from um, believing that it can actually that it stands to win? if it uh, decided to try such an invasion. And I think that we've tried you know, the method of, we called it engagement in the American foreign policy community. Uh, we've tried you know, the, having a very collaborative approach and that, that got us a major military buildup on the Chinese side. It hasn't really worked out the way that we have thought.
0: literally just got back from recording Breaking Points with Sager, something for Crystal this morning. had an amazing time. This is my third time doing this. I think it gets better and better and better, but always looking for more pointers. So go check out those episodes, especially our segment on Matthew McConaughey and the segment that we did with today's guest. The guest's name is Jacob Helberg. He is the author of The Wires of War Technology and The Global Struggle for Power. It is out today, Tuesday morning. We did a great segment with Jacob. You can check on the Breakpoint channel. But we also have a good conversation here. Everything from Taiwan to China, how the tech industry fits in. Lots of great stuff. Sagar, what did you enjoy and think we need to pull out here?
2: I think the most important thing is to resolve these questions. What does it mean to be America in the post-Afghanistan 9-11 age? What does great power competition with China actually look like? Uh, what lines do we have? Are there gray lines? Are they operating? How exactly should we confront this? Is it societal? Cold war doesn't seem like the answer. Nobody really wants that necessarily. Hot war also sounds terrible. Nobody wants war with China. We have to resolve these questions. We've been trying to get at that deeply here on The Realignment. And I got to say, I am stunned at the just organic level of interest in All of this, Marshall, it's this is not D.C. wonkery. This is real. Like I see people on my Instagram feed arguing about Jomi and Huawei in terms of companies and bands like this is some real stuff um, that I think that we're really trying to speak to here. And I think Jacob does a very good job of clarifying it for us.
0: Yeah. And. Speaking of organic incoming, we've got a lot of people who are asking for more, specifically China, Taiwan tech related content. We definitely need to do an episode exclusively about Taiwan history, context questions. But look, this episode of Jacob is gonna be right up everyone's alley because once again, we're doing it as an introduction to a topic. We're focusing on, hey, how should we think about these incoming China questions? We had an interesting conversation this morning on the way to the studio to tape and we're just talking about look, like whether or not you think China is a concern, whether or not you care about Taiwan, on and on and on and on. All of these questions are incredibly important. So just put on your thinking caps, everyone. You don't have to agree with us, but think about the actual issues in front of you. Because once again, this isn't a question of, hey, let's just not give a shit because that's just not on the table right now. So a lot of really great stuff. Hey, and if there is anyone who is new here because you watched me on Breaking Points yesterday, you've got a couple really great things to check out. We have a newsletter that goes out every Thursday afternoon, Eastern Standard Time, original content, responses, a lot of great comments that we got from people last week. We're going to re-up them there. Interesting debates, a lot of things from this episode and our episode with Evan Osnos on Thursday. Definitely would love to see people's reactions and responses there. So you can follow the link in our show notes to subscribe there. And then you have... Have our bookshop, where you can purchase books that we recommend to you, that we are reading, and that feature our actual guests. So, today's book, The Wires of War Technology and the Global Struggle for Power, is going to be available at the bookshop as well. You help support a local bookseller, an author, and of course, the show as well. We get a tiny percentage of the affiliate sale there. And last but not least, huge thank you to Lincoln Network for supporting our work. Let's get into the episode. Jacob Halberg, welcome to The Realignment. Thanks for having me. Good to see you, Jacob. Good to see you, too. Let's start by understanding the frame by which you're thinking about the China technology competition for the 21st century framework. You use these conflicts and you describe them as a gray war between authoritarianism and
1: democracy. Can you define what a gray war means? Sure. So the foreign policy community has been having uh, a big debate about whether or not we're in a cold war with China over the last uh, few years. And in a way, I uh, not only do I believe that we are in a cold war with China, but I actually like the framing of a gray war because I think it's more accurate. There's this concept in military strategy called gray zone conflict that refers to conflict between two major governments that takes place between in the gray zone between war and peace it basically stems from the idea that war is not binary, it's a spectrum. And I think that technology has made that pervasive and and, uh, all the more evident today. You can attack uh, a foreign country and an adversary today in a way that's very, very high impact, very hard to attribute because technology is so pervasive and because the weapons of war have changed. And so that's why I asked myself, what do you call... You know the predominant geopolitical struggle of our time when gray zone conflict is a predominant feature of international politics and that's why i decided to call it the gray war and this is something we were
0: both wondering because this is something that's no doubt on the eye of the more skeptical members of the audience to what degree is this gray war you're describing a choice so for example you could say people saying, hey, look, we just pulled out of Afghanistan. We're rebalancing away from the Middle East. What if we just decide to mind our own business, avoid regime change wars, those parts? How much is this is a, a choice that we're making or you're describing
1: a world that exists no matter what any of us think? I think in the United States, because we've had the incredible good fortune of being surrounded by major oceans and having some degree of uh, geographic distance from the rest of the world, We've, we've often tended to assume that we have you know, the single point of agency in deciding how our foreign policies run, but the reality is that the world is dynamic and interactive, and our foreign policy necessarily needs to be based on the foreign policy of the other major players in the world that we're engaging with. And you know, it takes two to tango. Uh, we can have the best intentions and want peace and all those things but ultimately if you're interacting with a country that is uh fundamentally engaged in a gray war with you you are not going to be met at the altar and you're going to see things like the massive deindustrialization of your country and you know a lot of other uh, negative side effects takes place that is ultimately not going to be in your interest and i think that with china part of the issue that we've struggled with is that there are systemic structural issues where Regardless of who's in power, you're going to have systemic issues because the systems of the Chinese CCP and the democratic American system are fundamentally at odds.
2: You know, Jacob, at what point, though, could gray war war turn hot? And obviously, we're talking right now at a period of very high tension between the U.S., and China over Taiwan, we've seen multiple Chinese incursions into Taiwan's air defense spaces just in the last couple of weeks. I think the latest one was particularly brazen given you know what, what like, President Biden just said yesterday like we are sticking to our commitment to Taiwan. That's still relatively ambiguous as to what that means. At what point do these things start to drift into the conventional warfare space?
1: And I think that's such an important point because you're right that actually the last few weeks have uh we've seen over the last few weeks a major escalations of uh Chinese incursions in um, the Taiwanese airspace. Um, I think it was uh, you know somewhere in the lines of well over 50 planes that have uh, uh, penetrated the Taiwan air- airspace just in you know four days. so yeah you know, and and the Taiwanese uh, defense minister actually said that, there is a pretty high chance that the Chinese could engage in a full-scale invasion of the island by 2025, which is obviously, you know, in geopolitical terms, tomorrow. And I think that we have to ask ourselves if you really want to serve the interests of peace and if you want to prevent these things from happening, how do you do that? And do you do that by uh, sticking your head in the sand and? And you know, pretending like you're not in a, a moment of major geopolitical tension, or do you do that by leaning in on deterrence and actually preventing a very ambitious autocratic foreign government from um, believing that it can actually that it stands to win if it uh, decided to try such an invasion? And I think that we've tried, you know, the method of we called it engagement in the American foreign policy community. Uh, we've tried, you know, the having a very collaborative approach, and that that got us a major military buildup on the Chinese side. It hasn't really worked out the way that we've thought, and so now I think that you know, to echo Michelle Flournoy, the erosion of American deterrence in the East Asia Pacific has actually served us a, a huge disservice, and so. Uh, the AUKUS deal that was recently signed is actually incredibly useful to help restore a sense of deterrence.
0: You know, I'm glad you brought up the AUKUS deal because it lets us work your biography and because I was actually curious about this. So you were you were born in France uh, and part of what came from the AUKUS deal was in actually a major diplomatic incident between the U.S. and the country of France um, itself because of various, sort of complicated, but that has to deal with um, the purchases of submarines and our defense relationships with Australia, Australia and the U.K. And when you're writing this book, you're describing this as a competition between Chinese autocracy and Western plus democracy. How unified is the West in this context? Is France aligned with the U.S.? Is the U.K. aligned with France? Where
1: does New Zealand fit into this? How do you think about that broad construct? Um, well, you can see within Europe that a lot of democracies have a lot of different you know, uh, ways that they prioritize their interests. It's hard to get 27 democracies aligned, let alone a higher number of democracies. I think part of the issue is... The primary reason that I think Europe struggles with, with respect to China, to be honest, is the fact that for a long time, we had a prevailing philosophy uh, in the West that we decoupled our economic policy from our national security policy. And so that led us to uh, intertwine our economies and involve our economies to very significant extents with China And now you have a situation where, for example, Germany exports billions of dollars worth of automobiles to China. And, you know, France obviously has a lot of its high-end luxury brands like Louis Vuitton and so forth that are very lucrative in China. And that creates a really hard tension when the Biden administration is asking, or, you know, whatever administration, the Trump administration did the same, was asking European governments to toughen its line on China. And European governments, you know, they see the ethical, moral security angles and justifications for doing so, but they struggle with taking uh, steps that are too harsh that could potentially cause pushback on them economically. And that is a bit of a problem. And that's a problem, to be honest, that um, a lot of countries around the world are struggling with. But interestingly, countries in East Asia are the closest to China and they are the closest spectators to seeing the threat that China poses, and they have been the most eager to partner with the U.S. and actually have a stronger line, and that is a cause for optimism.
2: Yeah, it's fascinating watching kind of the geopolitical chess. I mean, I thought AUKUS was a really important development in kind of the Anglosphere um, in alliance with the East Asian nations who are far more hawkish towards China than France, Germany, and the Europeans. How does that shake out, let's say, 25 years from now? It, it almost seems like a return to, you know, like 18th, 19th century politics, like the Anglosphere versus the, you know, the Germans and the French are, you know, as usual all over the place. They'll probably end up on <laughs> our side, but they'll take forever to get there. Uh, how do you see all this?
1: as someone who grew up in france uh you know france is america's oldest ally and i certainly hope that the recent unfortunate uh series of events that led to a lot of french frustration gets smooth over very soon and i think that story is still unfolding but but i think that you're right i think that if you look at east asia it's actually really striking how you have a series of rivaling powers and the map of east asia today actually looks you know there are a lot of really interesting parallels with the map of europe in the 19th century where you have rising you know uh rival powers that are affluent and uh, competitors and have a lot a lot of historic you know tensions between them i mean france and germany obviously are have fought many many wars together and you know you have similar situations between china and japan and so the U.S. actually has an opportunity to really be an anchor in that region. Um, I think the AUKUS deal actually uh, really—I mean, I can't stress enough how momentous. It's probably the most significant grand strategic move that the United States has made since NATO. The—you um, know—obviously, if I could wave a wand and have it any other way, I would accelerate the timeline of the AUKUS deal because the sooner we can get nuclear subs in Australia's hands, the better. But the 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 main thrust of the deal is. If you give Australians more nuclear subs, I mean, I wrote an article that basically talked about the importance of decentralizing deterrence and how, you know, if you really want to have deterrence in an age when you have more decentralized threats, you you want our allies to have um, more muscle to flex. And, and that will ultimately make deterrence more credible because it prevents our adversaries from trying to take us on in multiple theaters and paralyzing us. So if if Australia has subs, if uh, the Japanese have subs, it's gonna make it really hard for China to have a lot of uh, room to maneuver in uh, the Indo-Pacific. And ultimately, subs sink ships. And China's just built 350 ships, which is hugely concerning and which is the key to their path for a potential invasion of Taiwan. If we want deterrence, we need to have an asymmetric capacity to sink their navy, and I think we need to be honest about that. And also, that doesn't mean that we're going to do it, but I think having the capacity to do it is what's needed to deter them from trying. And and I think that that you know because the August deal paves the way for that, it, it's hugely important. Now there's a timeline problem because the August deal doesn't reach completion. You know, until the end of the decade, and obviously, if China invades before then, you know, it's it's a bit of a problem. But, um, but you know, it's it's certainly a step in the right direction.
0: I like how you just put the point about the timeline mattering here, because the thing that's interesting is, if we're looking back from a historical perspective, there's an issue, and people like Hal Brands have written. Um, he actually gave a good review of your book, but he, he had a good he had a good recent piece recently uh, at Bloomberg, I believe, around how. When powers feel under threat, that could actually accelerate their timeline. So there's a situation where you say, hey, like the AUKUS deal isn't isn't going to complete until 2030. China says... Hey, actually, we only have till 2025 to make the moves we need to make. If you look at why, you know, the Hitler invaded the Soviet Union for a variety of reasons in 1941. But a huge part that drove his decision making was there is this period where I need to act before it will be too late. So as you just think of these timelines and how you're making moves and counter moves. How, how does this, all of this play out? Because that's, I think the historical context, once again, cliches, history rhymes, it doesn't repeat all of that said, how do we think of how those decisions that we're making play into the actual decision-making of leaders in the CCP?
1: I mean, I think, uh, Hal Branson's piece was really interesting. And, um, I think, you know, you, you struck a key point, which is, um, The fact that there are so many trend lines that we've seen coming out of china recently that really highlight i think a sense of fear from the part of xi jinping and i think that you know the reason that i think is that's important is because um, there has there has been for a long time our foreign policy community in the us has denied that we had a, a really big china problem and very quickly, there was a whole constituency of people that shifted from denial to despair, where they basically said, China's too big. You know, there's we're, there's no way we're ever going to, you know, surpass them or uh, win a major contest with them. And so we just need to figure out, you know, they called it peaceful coexistence, a way that we could peacefully coexist. And I think that the central argument of um of people that are pessimistic on the U.S. is that is basically China's population. It always comes back to the fact that they have 1.4 billion people, and if they have a GDP per capita that's uh, comparable to the U.S., uh, then you know their economy is going to be so much bigger, and there's no way that we can beat them. But ultimately, one of the things that uh, recent events have shown us the crack the tech crackdown that Xi Jinping instigated. Uh, the fact that he is becoming more and more aggressive internationally is that the argument, the population argument, doesn't factor in uh, ideas and you know basic human ang- instincts, and those are on our side. People, I think, fundamentally want to be able to be free. They want to be able to disagree with each other without ending up in a gulag. They want to be able to. You know, send their kids to school without having to be afraid of coming home to an empty house with their parents jailed up and so forth. And you know, with uh, with Xi Jinping, you he, he, he is a leader that he wouldn't be locking up his billionaires and cracking down on his tech companies if he wasn't fundamentally afraid of seeing a potential a potential, alternative base of power emerge in his country. He is very, very concerned with keeping his control uh, of power within China. And I think that's probably why you're seeing him engage in such a crackdown. And I think that sense of fear in him should be uh, should validate the reasons why we should actually be optimistic about the US's prospects in this contest and, uh, and should remind us the weaknesses and uh, how brittle uh, the Chinese system is because it's so centralized.
2: I struggle with this all the time. On the one hand, I see exactly what you're talking about. I'm like, look, this is still a billion five or a billion two or whatever people. Um it's they have to grow with some absurd number in order just to remain like basic homeostasis in terms of their middle class. They have all kinds of mega social pathologies and problems. And at the same time, I mean, you know, not doing so well here in terms of our domestic politics. Like you said, AUKUS doesn't close for the next decade. What does Xi Jinping actually want? Is that the most important question? Can it be disaggregated from what does the CCP actually want? Like, who are the players? What are their actual desires? They actually want to invade Taiwan? Like, what's the mindset there right now?
1: Well, so because of the authoritarian nature of the Chinese government, uh, I think most decisions that are coming out of the CCP can are ultimately uh, traceable back to a single person, which is Xi. And so I think it nobody really knows in the US or in the West, even people from the intelligence community, nobody can read Xi Jinping's head. So it's hard to know what his motives are. But but we can see what the impact and what the effects of what he's doing are. And the impact, a through line in everything that he's doing is that with him, all roads lead back to a consolidation of power. I mean, the locking up of billionaires, the cracking down on tech companies, this left turn that he's taking from a policy standpoint domestically, that's basically being used as a ploy to go after all of his potential adversaries. Um, it's just a continuation of, you know, when he first came to power, he went on this purged against corruption, quote unquote, which was it's it's different labels to basically keep going after his political adversaries at home. And uh, and so I think that, you know, when you see this really high concern with control for power, um, I think that, you know, and, and when you ask yourself to answer a question, what does he want uh, and what does that look like internationally? I think it's really, really hard. You, you can't disambiguate your behavior habits at home are ultimately going to mirror your behavior habits abroad. And the best way we can anticipate what China is going to do abroad is by looking at the way that, he, that they behave at home. And so that doesn't really bode well for, you know, you're already seeing that when they bully Australia, when they bully EU parliamentarians. I mean, these are behavior habits of real world people, and they basically behave the same way abroad and they behave at home. And ultimately, what Xi Jinping wants is a world that's safe for him and for the CCP. You know, the same. We want a world safe for democracy. He wants a world safe for the CCP. And it just so happens that a world safe for the CCP is antithetical to a world safe for democracy, And so that's where the rubber meets the road, and that's where a lot of the tension comes out of.
0: And we'll get to the specifics of the cyber part of the conversation in the second part, but the last thing I'm looking to do here is to continue setting the stage, which you're doing a really great job of doing, by just saying, help people understand the 2020s plus world that you're describing in The Wires of War. Because something that frustrates me in these conversations is, especially, you know, we're all millennials here we've had to go through within our lifetimes, like you, as you write in the book, you were born in 1989, like literally as the Berlin Wall was coming down. So Sagar and I just missed this as children of the 1990s, but we've actually gone through three or four different eras, right? So you have this Cold War competition where the US is against the Soviet Union. But as you know, you and others have pointed out, there wasn't an economic competition there because the Soviet Union was actually a basket case. There wasn't this technological competition because once again, there was no internet, at least in its current, form where this becomes a dynamic. Then you have the 1990s where it's the end of history, everything's super chill, nothing basically matters, democracy spreads, NATO expands, etc. And then you have the past 20 years of the war on terror, where the U.S. at the height of its power made a bunch of really, really terrible decisions that Sagar and I have really cataloged here that just leads to very basic overreach. And it frustrates me when people look at those three worlds I described and try to just impart their frustrations from those worlds onto it. Because just to give the final context here, I get how there are members of the audience who are thinking, okay, Jacob, you're talking about China being an imperialist power, but the U.S., the U.S. imposes democracies on countries against its will. The U.S. does sanctions. There were these things that happened in Guatemala in the 1950s. But my pushback is always, that's all fair and that could be real. But in the world that you're describing, those aren't the questions. The question isn't, hey, like, how do we invade China and make Western, you know, China the free stri- free state of the Uyghurs? Like that's not the question, and literally no one um, is proposing that now. So just help people understand how the world of the twenty twenty, basically
1: COVID plus, is different than the different worlds that we all grew up in. Uh, one of the concepts in the book that I think is probably one of the most important takeaways is um that the very concept that technology is changing the very concept of national sovereignty and you know when we think about the world in the 2020s uh one of the things that we're seeing you know i call the back end of the back end battle of the gray war when you have a country like china that draws no distinction between the public and the private sector Mm -hmm. that is aggressively pushing its domestic companies like Huawei that are building internet infrastructure into a lot of other countries, subsidizing them to the tune of $75 billion, not out of the charity of their hearts, but because it's strategically beneficial to them. What that means is that, uh, and because of net China's intelligence laws and so forth, that gives China, the CCP, uh, the political party in China, the the back uh, door keys to all of the data that runs on top of that infrastructure. And so you have to ask yourself what happens and what does it mean for a country's sovereignty when you have an autocratic adversary like China that basically has access to all of the personal, uh, you know, romantic medical uh, financial information about the journalists, judges, and politicians of a country—you know, the companies, the intellectual property—when you have uh, keys to the back door of everything, of all the data of a given country, that country fundamentally loses its sovereignty. And you know, in the book, I basically sum it up by saying that. Uh, When you own the wires in the ground, you don't need to send troops on the ground. And that's kind of, you know, a nutshell, a fundamental paradigm shift that we're going to see in the 2020s. And that's why China feels so strongly about Huawei, because it really understands the strategic benefits that Huawei brings to it. It's not because, you know, Huawei provides X number of jobs in China, it's because it has this bigger picture at this major geostrategic uh implication and you know the 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 proof is there's actually evidence for this uh it's not just me saying it but uh, a dutch telecom kpn uh ran uh, an analysis a few years ago that just became public earlier this year that basically showed that uh, a cybersecurity analysis that basically showed that huawei had access to everything that ran across its network including you know, cell phone numbers of people making phone calls, the content of those communications, conversations of members of the Dutch parliament. I mean, it's, you know, control at the hardware level is an incredibly potent, you know, far-reaching uh, level of access, and and it has enormous implications uh, politically and geopolitically.
2: So then that brings the major question, Jacob, how do we In the West, who have an open democratic system, think about this. I was just reading Mm -hmm. this morning an article about BlackRock. And uh, BlackRock basically was summoned to the chief financial regulator of the CCP. He was like, hey, there's a market sell off, and it would be great if you could say something. And then they did. And then they got 20 days later a permit in order to invest and open some fund in China. That's an American company. These are American citizens. So they recognize very clearly. That our companies and our citizens are very vulnerable to either being outright bought off or vulnerable to pressures, but we can't say, "Hey, Larry Fink, uh, you're not doing that anymore." We can't imprison Larry Fink like they do mm-hmm. Jack Ma. We, we shouldn't be able to. How do we think about that when we are playing the gray war and we're trying yeah. to control our elements of national power that they have uh, that they've very clearly identified as targets?
1: Yeah, I mean they have civil-military fusion. We have civil-military confusion, uh, unfortunately. But uh, I think at a very, very high level, I think there's. I'll, I'll first talk about you know high-level first principles things, and then go into a couple tactical things that we could do. At a very high level, uh, uh, you know, first principles uh, from a first principles standpoint, I think it's really important that we shift from calling this a competition to calling this either a cold war or a gray war because. I think, you know, the the reason that I think nomenclature really matters is we're economic competitors with uh, Japan, with Germany. We have lots of economic competitors, but, you know, competition implies that we're competing on a level playing field along rules that are mutually agreed upon. And when you're competing, your uh, political survival isn't on the line. It's really just, you know, a commercial competition here with China, because it is a, you know, political struggle. It's a war because ultimately the winner is going to dominate the other. And this is about the very political survival of our system. And so I think it's really important that we call it that because other, if we don't, if we call it a competition, we're not, you know, people, we're not going to ask our entire uh, swaths of our society and our industries to absorb short-term costs uh, for a competition. But for a war, we will, uh, you know, for World War II all of the domestic and foreign policies of the United States were redirected towards a single overriding objective, and that was winning the war. And I think we need that level of strategic clarity today if we want to be successful. And I think adjusting our nomenclature is the first step to doing that. Arguably, during the Cold War, we had a similar level of strategic clarity. We were in a Cold War. We said we were in a Cold War. And a lot of things that we did domestically and abroad were oriented through the prism of how that interacted with the Cold War environment. Um, at a tactical level, I think uh, there's a, a couple of things that we need to do. Um, the first is we need to de- uh, de-globalize abroad. We need to de-globalize, China, you know, what I call China's eye of Sauron, which is a bit of a dramatic, you know, description for. Uh, to describe basically the fact that China is exporting a lot of its technology infrastructure abroad. And in doing so, it'll, it, it will give the CCP you know, incredibly intrusive access to uh, the data of other countries. And you know, it'll allow just in the same way that the eye of Sauron was this eye that basically could see all things in all places at all times. The, what the CCP is building with its CCTV cameras that it's exporting abroad, with you know, its internet infrastructure, it's de-anonymizing the internet. We, You could live in a world where uh, the CCP has an enormous amount of centralized control uh, over vast blocks of the world. And so de-globalizing that capability should be a major priority of the US government. And last, uh, resolving this conflict between Parts of our business community and, you know, our national security priorities, I think is really, really key. Ultimately, it is um, the sole responsibility of the US government. It's in the preamble of our Constitution that a fundamental purpose of the US government is to provide for the common defense. So it's really a core function of our government to lay down the ground rules and say what's okay and not okay when it comes to doing business with a foreign adversary like China. I think it's very you know we should have an outbound sypheus, uh, a framework that basically says you know that the US government has the authority to review any outbound investments in China for national on national security grounds the same way that today we have a siphius framework that, Uh, makes it possible for the US government to review inbound investments into the United States on national security grounds. And I think deconflicting our business community from uh, China, I think is is a really, really important step. Something
0: I'm wondering about is your point that Chinese authoritarianism is a direct threat to our way of life because I disagree with these people, but I'm just very well aware of the fact that there is probably a sizable portion of the country who doesn't care about Taiwan, um, who says, look, Hong Kong fell, that sucks, but this ultimately just isn't worth it, much in the same way that there are people in the Cold War who would have questioned whether or not the U.S. and the world should have been at the brink of nuclear standoff over Berlin in 1961, 1962. So can you just expand on why you actually think that Beyond China's immediate vicinity, those actions and this system actually poses a threat to our way of life. Because once again, I think what these people are suggesting, let's assume they're operating in good faith is basically, look, like we think this relationship, if we're looking at what went wrong in the Cold War, it's very clearly the U.S., there was a period where, where, where the Soviet Union was obviously exporting communism very directly, especially in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. But, you know, after Stalin's death, after things start calming down, after Kennedy and Khrushchev, the U.S. and Soviet Union basically balanced to get balance together. And the lesson from countries such as Vietnam is just intervening in these places because you're overly raising the stake. Thinking that what happened in Vietnam was going to determine our domestic freedom was just a total mistake. So... Could just explain your framework about the political threat at home to people who have the skepticism I just articulated?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, the three main reasons why we should be very concerned about Taiwan is uh, because of chips, maritime routes and precedent. Uh, So, you know, it's we're talking right now through computers and, you know, we use cell phones every day. All these things take computer chips and we're not going to have any if china invades taiwan or our, our access to them is going to be very very constrained or the integrity of those chips i, I divide you know the the back-end uh cyber issues into two buckets access and integrity we need to have access to chips and we we need to make sure that the integrity of those chips hasn't been compromised and we won't be able to guarantee either if, Taiwan, if if China invades Taiwan. So the access and integrity of our chips is incredibly critical to our economy. Uh, so that's number one. Number two, the Taiwan Strait is a, is a major maritime corridor of global trade. And uh, a Chinese invasion of Taiwan would give them an enormous amount of leverage over controlling that corridor, which is another point, you know, which is another choke point uh, that could potentially have enormous repercussions on our economy. And the third is I actually do find the precedent argument compelling, which is, you know, the argument that you were alluding to with people that were skeptical, you know, about domino theory in in Vietnam. I mean, domino theory in Vietnam, you know, domino theory got a really bad rep in, in Vietnam, but I think it's important to remember that there were a lot of other places where it actually did apply. And, you know, if you look at in the, during the interwar period, obviously, you know, when Germany invaded uh, uh, Czechoslovakia at the time and, you know, the Sudetenland, there was a really compelling argument that sometimes when you have an ambitious autocratic, you know, uh, revisionist power uh, that is fueled by a feeling of resentment against, you know, Western values, you know, the US, whatever it may be, you really need to draw a clear line in the sand. Otherwise, you know they're always going to come back for more. It, they're not going to stop at Taiwan. They're going to go after Mongolia. They're going to go after you know other islands. And you need to draw a line in the sand somewhere. Otherwise, you will find yourself on your back foot and in a much weaker position to respond.
2: So this is an important point too to take it outside of the realm of real and more, even more so into tech. Obviously, we have to talk about TikTok. I mean, we're now at a point where TikTok, I believe, has surpassed Instagram for time on app, which is probably the single most important metric um, whenever it comes to advertising. And I can assure you, given the Facebook files, one thing that comes out is that Mark Zuckerberg is very clearly, um, very freaked out at how much ground they are losing. And this is a wholesale Chinese-owned company, by ByteDance, which we know has been politically directed and used by the Chinese state in the past. That's a matter of public record. The CEO himself has openly you know, groveled before the CCP in order to stay in business. At this point, what do we do about it? I mean, we have, what, 80-something million Americans? Two years ago, it's a different conversation. Today, majority of US adults are on the app. So how do you think about both the TikTok case study, never again, still ban it. Where's your head at?
1: Um, so the the president issued an executive order uh, that builds on top of the executive orders uh, issued by the previous president, and you know the executive order that that this president issued basically outlines more specific cybersecurity related criteria that are grounds upon which you know the 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 president or the administration in power. Uh, may consider restricting or taking action against a given, you know, technology application. I think the executive order was good because ultimately having more part of, you know, when Trump was trying to ban TikTok, TikTok was going to take the case to court, was going to take the administration's action to court saying, well, it's arbitrary, you know, they don't have legal authorities to do it. Uh, the reason that Biden's executive order helps is because it actually provides more explicit objective criteria, which makes the administration's position more defensible if they decide to ban it. I, I believe that at this point, there really is, if you really want to do the right thing for the security of the country, you basically have two options. You have to force a hard divestment, a true divestment, which means it's not just you know a divestment of the corporate entity. Of TikTok, like Microsoft buys TikTok, it's that you actually have to divest the company from China's jurisdictional reach. So you need to move the servers, the engineers, uh, all of the information infrastructure outside of China, so that China can't get so that China can't get to it. So long as the servers are in China, or that the engineers that have access to those servers are in China, under Chinese laws. Uh, you know, Chinese officials can knock on the door of employees of TikTok employees in China and say, you guys are legally required to comply with intelligence requests and you need to hand over this data. And, you know, the cybersecurity risk still exists regardless of who owns TikTok. So I think you either need to completely divest TikTok from China if you're going to address cybersecurity risk or you ban it in the US, which is what India did. Um, And, you know, I think that the, the cybersecurity case for either doing a hard divestment or a complete suspension is, is truly compelling. I mean, the fact is is uh, we you know the um, my point of disagreement with the current administration is that the executive order that was issued basically gives the admin six months to do a review to decide you know what to do. Uh, I think that there's enough public information out there. and this case, has been out there for a long time now, like two years, two and a half years we already know all the things that they are need to know about TikTok. We already know that, it, you know, all the data it collects. Uh, there have been so many engineers that have uncovered information about, you know, the fact that it, um, it scrapes, uh, you know, all kinds of data that that's sensitive on your phone, not just on the app that at this point, I think it's, A perfectly reasonable conclusion uh, to it's perfectly reasonable to arrive to the conclusion that it either needs to be totally divested or suspended completely. And and I mean, I know that there are a lot. I know that there are a lot (laughs) of users, you know, that use it. But you know, we a lot of people smoke tobacco, and that doesn't mean that you know uh, that uh, there haven't been rules in many parts of the world to restrict uh, access to tobacco. I mean, at the end of the day. You know, I think that if people want to smoke cigarettes, that's totally their you know, prerogative, but if you're putting the national security of the country at risk, that's a little bit of a different story. And with TikTok, it's a gaping national security hole in, our, our, in the integrity of our uh, information infrastructure. So um, I, I think that the argument to divest or suspend is, is really compelling. So in our last bit here, you obviously come from a Silicon Valley
0: background, head of news policy at Google during, I'd probably guess, one of the most tumultuous periods of actually having that role, but it's not like you're holding that, you know, in early, you know, 2011. How is Silicon Valley reckoning with everything you said? Because you did an interesting piece on foreign policy, looking at the company Zoom and how it's... Everything that Zoom's going through, everything that TikTok's going through, obviously this involved Google, is this idea of it, the whole one company, two systems, as in Google will have a way that it behaves in the U.S. and then it will have a way that it behaves in China. And ultimately, this is a reconcilable position. You argue that that is no longer possible, given the world that not only you're describing in the future, but actually the world we've been living in for far longer than anyone actually realized. So it would be great to have you expand on that position
1: yeah, I mean, you basically have laws are an expression of values, fundamentally. And in the u s and in China, you have laws and you know political values that are systemically in, at odds with one another. In the u s, we have a system that's completely predicated on personal privacy, protection of intellectual property, free speech, you know all of these concepts. That in China, you are expected. To, uh, you know, companies are expected. the The overarching value on Chinese laws is total compliance with the CCP. You know, whether it's w- with respect to content moderation or handing over of information to the CCP of you know data, whatever. Whether it's IP or whether it's data about users, uh, compliance to the CCP is the overarching value in uh, much of China's you know data security laws. And what you uh, arrive to is a situation when when you have companies that try to have uh, a feet on both sides of the a foot on both sides of the fence, you basically have a situation where they're straddling systems that are in conflict. And you know, complying with laws in China when you're handing over information may mean that in certain situations, you might actually be in compliance with complying with a request in China that is actually, uh, you know that is actually in conflict with legal expectations in the in the U.S. And you know it's if if the Chinese government asks you to hand over information about a Chinese citizen in China, that's fine. But if they're asking you to uh, hand over information about a Chinese national that is in the United States that has dual citizenship, uh, all of a sudden you know you're running into legal conflicts where that. Person uh, is probably entitled to uh, constitutional privacy protections in the U.S. as well. So, what are you going to do? Are you going to comply with China? Or are you going to observe privacy protections in the U.S.? It's really, really hard. And ultimately, you know, when when you have systems in the U.S. and China that extrapolate, that have expectate, that expect their companies to observe their norms internationally. It's really hard to not pick a side. I mean, in in China, it's not sufficient to just abide rules in China. China expects you to ab- abide your their content moderation rules, basically around the world nowadays. Um, you know, if I mean, you had cases where um, I don't know if you guys remember, but you know, you have. Who was it? There were NFL players, uh, you know, Hollywood studios that would say things on Twitter about the protests oh, yeah. in Hong Kong. Right. Twitter, an American platform in the US that's banned, it's, it's not even Morgan, present in China. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's not even Twitter's not even allowed in China. That didn't stop the Chinese government from basically forcing that person to issue a public apology. So, what that says is they expect people doing business in China to go by Chinese rules abroad. And it's just really hard. You're not, you know, you you kind of have to pick a side because uh, if you try to straddle two totally different worlds, you're gonna end up in an impossible situation.
2: Yeah.
0: Quick follow up on that. What's interesting here, and you're getting at a frustration that certain members of the audience and just the public during the TikTok and Chinese censorship debates happen, which is they say, Jacob, that's all well and good, but honestly, We think that American companies violate our privacy every day. We think that American companies engage in censorship. We think that if you actually, and this isn't something that I particularly agree with, but there's this whole increasing frame of the right of how there's this like broad, woke, Um, alliance between corporations, the higher education system and government to impose a worldview. So they basically say, you know, Jacob, all that's fine and dandy, but we're more concerned about these debates at home in our domestic policy. How do you think about, and once again, like my general take here is that those are two entirely different areas and whataboutism basically has literally never been useful in any context. I'm just curious how you think
1: about that. You know that there's something qualitatively different when you are able to express those frustrations freely on uncensored platforms. Uh, You know, if you tried, if you had the same frustrations about the Chinese system in China, expressing that would land you in a gulag. And so (laughs) I think that, you know, it's, um, I actually share a lot of the concerns, you know, I'm very, very much in favor of uh, freedom of expression. I mean, I feel so passionately about democracy and civil liberties that obviously uh, a significant part of the, of the book that I wrote is about that. But at the end of the day, if you want people, I mean, in our system, our system has never claimed to be perfect, but it does claim to have the capacity to self-correct and ultimately people that see flaws in our system you know, because we have a system of checks and balance, if they think something is unlawful or or illegal, they can challenge it in court. They can freely write about it online. They can talk about it in the press. Our flaws can be aired publicly. And, you know, we work on them as a society uh, continuously. Congress holds hearings. You know, I mean, you just had um, the quote unquote whistleblower up on Capitol Hill the other day uh, from Facebook. Um, So we have a system that actually embraces debate and discussion about these things. In China, you have a system that does not, and any kind of dissent and debate about these issues tends to get people silenced or jailed. And that is a really, really scary difference uh, that I think we should always keep in mind and uh, never lose sight of.
2: I think it's such a dumb critique. I'll just call them out. I mean, Tim Cook literally told the FBI to screw off in unlocking an iPhone, uh, in a terrorist investigation for, like, the yeah. Pulse Massacre, okay? Like, one of the worst domestic terrorists. It's actually, pre-Las Vegas, the worst mass shooting in American history. And Apple said, no, we're not going to do that. Also, it's not like you even... you never have no that in China. Way. Exactly. Jack Ma is going to prison just for strutting about town a little bit too high for his britches. Like... It's not the same system, folks, Uh, but apparently, you know, bashing America is very fashionable these days. Uh, I think the final thing that I'd like to ask here is about the real world discussion of deindustrialization here at home, why it matters. Why does it matter in the tech context, the conversation, all of that? What do you think?
1: Um, I think it matters a great deal because um, I think ultimately one of the things that we've seen during the the outbreak, at- you know, in the earlier stages of the coronavirus pandemic is, you know, there used to be this school of thought for a while in economic policy where people used to joke, you know, computer chips, potato chips, what difference does it make? You know, it's, it's all trade and spe- economic specialization is a good thing and economies of scale and all that. But... I think one of the things that we're seeing is uh, it actually does matter if you know you're exporting computer chips or potato chips, and we you know didn't have access to. Uh, there were so many things in the early days of the coronavirus pandemic that we didn't have access to, and I think when you extrapolate a few years from now, the fact that we are not friends with China, and I think we need to be honest about that, uh, the fact that you know Taiwan sees a potential their words full scale invasion possible by 2025 means that the US you know i don't the the future of US China diplomatic relations is very uncertain um i think that raises a lot of really big questions for in a world where our diplomatic relations are in question what does that mean for all the supply chains we have there you know what does that mean for apple what does that mean for all of the the companies that rely on steady, stable diplomatic relations. And its I think it's vitally important for the macroeconomic stability and security of our companies and our country to actually go through the very, very laborious legwork of figuring out... What are the bucket of goods that are not critical to national security, and we don't care where it comes from, the bucket of goods that are absolutely so vital that we need them to be made here in the US, and the bucket of goods that are critical but can be made in some sort of allied space. Uh, in countries that we trust, and you know, uh, in in countries outside of China, it it doesn't have to be made here. It can be made in South Korea, for example, because it's an ally, and South Korea has Samsung and can make electronics. And so we need to kind of figure that out, and we need to figure that out pretty quickly because time is kind of you know uh, flying by us. And you know, if China does invade Taiwan in 2025, that doesn't leave us a whole lot of time to prepare for. Uh, a really, really uh, turbulent uh, chapter in U.S.-China relations. My last question to take
0: us out would be actually just picking up on your framework of questions. We keep relating back to the Cold War in the 20th, in the 20th century. There were a couple of big questions. Once again, whether or not you liked what the U.S. was doing, you, pro, con, had to have some type of answer to. So, for example, hey, like, what is the nuclear red line? What does Berlin matter or not? Is domino theory real or not? Does what happens in South Korea matter with North Korea during the Korean War, et etc., etc., etc.? Take whatever view you want on those things. What, for the audience, as they're leaving this episode, whether they're convinced by arguments or not, what questions should they think of answering along the framework we're descri- describing that are going to be fundamentally at stake here?
1: questions that the audience should think of. Oh, just, answering. Just,
0: just, just 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 anyone. So for example, for for me, a question that would come from the conversation around cyber is hey, like, does strategic ambiguity make any sense? So for example, does it make sense to have this ambiguous relationship with Taiwan? Does it make sense to say what level of cyber attack represents an escalation? So is it a Do we need to have a nuclear deterrent when it comes to a massive cyber attack on our critical infrastructure? Those are the type of questions that one needs to answer whether or not, once again, one agrees with every decision U.S. foreign policy makes, those type of things.
1: I mean, there are, um, I think, a lot of, you know, the foreign policy community has been doing a lot of soul searching over the last few years. Mm -hmm. So I think questions that range from, uh, for a long time, we assumed that manufacturing jobs can't come back to the U.S. And I think a big question today is: uh, Can we afford not to bring those jobs back? Or, you know, in some way, shape, or form, uh, can we afford to live in a world where our the access that we enjoy and the integrity of our supply chains is disrupted? And what might that look like? I mean, you might think that it's easy to, you know, shrug your shoulders and think, oh, you know, we'll figure that out. Ask the automobile industry. I mean, they have delays. They've had delays in their supply chains for months right now because they haven't been able to get chips. Imagine if you had uh, an even worse situation across multiple sectors beyond the auto industry. And and I mean, I think that fundamentally, uh, a really big picture question is um, for our business community, do you really think that you can separate your individual success from the fate of the country as a whole? And I think that's a really big existential question for them. I, I don't think you can kind of separate that. I don't think you can do well as a company if you're operating from a country that, if you're doing things that are ultimately putting your country in a very precarious, um, if you're putting the country on a back foot, and you know, if if the country is, uh, to use Chinese words, an irreversible decline. I think that the you know there's a lot of uh, foreign policy experts that need to ask themselves. Are we seeing from Beijing the hallmarks of a country that is confident in its future and uh, that believes that it's rising? Or are we seeing someone that is insecure and, you know, that wants to race to achieve a bunch of milestones for you know, Xi Jinping's legacy uh, because they think that time is running out, you know, obviously how brands think that uh, believes the latter. And I think that's a really important question that we need to ask ourselves. So I think that there, that, you know, because we're in a moment of soul searching, there's so many questions that people need to ask, but generally speaking, I mean, I would just come back to, you know, the, the main uh, concepts that we talked about earlier, which is that this is a, an existential moment for the country that we have a, a pretty finite window to seize on it. We have every reason to be optimistic about America's prospects to come out on top, but we should never take for granted that we could lose. Um, but we have agency and we can, the things we do today can ultimately culminate in a success story for the US and, and we should be confident in that.
2: I think that's really well said. Uh, Jacob, really appreciate you joining us today. Uh, we're going to have a link in the description where people can go and buy the book. Anywhere else you want to direct them?
1: Um, Amazon.com.
0: There you go. All Great. right.
1: The book is The Wires of
0: War, Technology, and the Global Struggle for Power. Jacob, thank you for joining us.
1: Thanks, Jacob. Thanks for having me.
0: Reminder, Substack subscription, bookshop book purchases. And of course, huge thank you to Lincoln Network for supporting our work. We'll see you next time.